0: What's our bants this week?
1: That's the problem. Like I started recording after the bants. So, you know, now that's going to be lost like tears in the rain and uh, <laughs> wonderful listeners won't be able to hear the hilarious things that we definitely just said before recording. It, it's
0: good that we've lost the tapes, to be honest, because it was just too raunchy and too exciting. And it's going to be one of the great lost artworks. It, it's like the Library of Alexandria times by 100. <laughs> <laughs> that wow. level of banter.
1: Real understatement of the year there, Matt. Real understatement of the year.
0: <laughs> well, of course, no more understatements when it comes to the AstraZeneca vaccine, Daniel. Oh, <laughs> wow. Sorry, that was bad. That was bad.
1: The segue is just starting already. Bad. Bad. We, can, yeah. we can
0: cut that out. We can cut that out. <laughs> Welcome to The PIM Factory, the Adders With Issues podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host, our Head of Programs, Daniel Pryor, as well as John McDonald, our Head of Government Affairs. This week we'll be discussing the latest on COVID, the London mayor elections, and reflections on Keir Starmer's first year as Labour leader.
1: The government has suspended use of the AstraZeneca vaccine for the under-30s age group after 79 reports of blood clots in the UK. This has raised concerns about the speed of the vaccination programme and the broader lifting of lockdown. But first, I think, to this suspension of the AstraZeneca vaccine for this under-30s age group. Matthew, do you think that restricting use is a reasonable risk-based assessment, or actually are some of our Uh, medical regulators potentially overreacting here?
0: Look, I'm in kind of two minds about the decision. Uh, It was good to see that in the government's press conference on the question, they effectively did take a cost-benefit approach, trying to explain the, the relative level of risk across different age groups and making the point that based upon their calculations, there's a slightly higher risk of people under the age of 30 of coming into interacting with blood clots after having AstraZeneca vaccine, then there is, at least based upon the current spread of COVID in the community, and then being hospitalised from COVID. So I, I appreciated the approach they were taking. That's at the same time, another part of me says, well, ironically, the EU regulator has not recommended stopping the use of the vaccine uh, for under 30s or under 50s, even though some individual countries have done that. The, the chance of coming down with a blood clot after having the vaccine is astronomically low and the the risks that come from an unvaccinated community are much higher so it's not clear to me that it was completely necessary to pause the vaccine for the under 30s but I'm glad they didn't do it for the under 40s or the under 50s as well and with the kind of general approach that they, they took to the problem.
1: Yeah certainly agreed on the the kind of valuing that they really did a, a solid attempt at least as a, at a cost-benefit analysis obviously there's still a lot of uncertainty around this. And there was some some great slides from the the Winton Center for Risk and Evidence Communication. uh, I think that's the Professor Jonathan Van Tam's kind of outfit, um, which talks about comparing the risk for different age groups with um, the the vaccine serious potential harms versus um, ICU admissions that would be prevented as a result of the vaccine. And they do that for each age group. And it's only really the 20 to 29 year age group that they find a, a kind of Discrepancy, although it's a very close in terms of cost-benefit analysis for doing the vaccine, but on the other hand, there is still an awful lot of uncertainty about this, um, and it is very much a kind of approach taken out of precaution and because we can, because we have alternatives available. If you look at, for example, just a recent EMA report on blood clots, there's some some studies that suggest that actually. The kind of background rate for these sort of conditions in the population might be about two and five in per million but then there's more recent studies that say actually the background rate completely absent or separate from covid vaccinations might be as high as 13 or 16 cases so there is a lot of uncertainty as to the kind of causation here and it's difficult for the sort of comparisons like this cost-benefit analysis to be made appropriately and it's always worth remembering that there is considerable uncertainty involved so I think this this is very much a kind of precautionary approach that we're only able to take because we have alternative vaccines available for under thirties as well. But I guess just just speaking of that that precautionary principle, John, you may have been as a loyal listener to the podcast, you may have heard um, <laughs> last month that we we kind of rubbish to a certain extent, or at least I certainly did. Um, Matthew, I'm sure can speak for himself, but we rubbish the idea of the precautionary principle being a a useful guide to, to action. Do you think actually that our regulators could have been right in this case to, to kind of use the precautionary principle and maybe they, they've saved some lives or actually are you kind of concerned?
2: I I don't really foresee a situation in which this decision saves more lives than otherwise just continuing the rollout of the vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine at least, in, in, in the way that it had been going. Although uh, am I right in thinking that by the time we all come around to getting our our vaccines anyway it, we'll we'll have plenty of uh, M- Moderna and Pfizer available and it's not it's not going to affect the rollout in in such a significant way is, is what I'm suggesting.
1: Right, yeah, I think that that's my impression as well and I think that's that's perhaps what makes the UK case slightly different from some of the the European countries that entirely mm. suspended it is that we do have alternatives. or we uh, you know Will and do have alternatives available that make this less of a, a kind of, a risk on the um, suspension side of things. So yeah, I'd, I'd certainly say there's a key difference there that's important to remember.
2: Yeah, I mean I'm not. That's a I'm not too irate about this uh, this particular implementation of the precautionary principle, right?
0: And another alternative, though, here is in my in my home country Australia is literally just made the decision to ban AstraZeneca shots for all under 50s. And Australia's vaccine rollout was already going disastrously badly and is very dependent mm. on AstraZeneca shots. So although they'll be able to provide it to, to old people in the community, it's gonna be practically impossible to get the role probably the vaccine rollout done this year, let alone kind of early next year, just because they, they don't have as much diversity in, in supply as the UK does. So I think you're right, in the UK's case, I'm not convinced as the, they're claiming that it's not going to have any impact on on the rollout. I, I think the other options, the, the, the Moderna and the Pfizer shop, they're on their way, but they're not coming as quickly and there's not as much production capacity mm. of them. Mm. Um, and although I don't think this is the big all and end all, there are additional logistic challenges with the fact that they need to be stored at much lower temperatures, the mRNA vaccines. So I think it's, it, it's not an impossibility, and, and I think the UK has the orders, it has the supply, and is in a, in a pretty privileged position and ultimately, vaccinating under 30s is like a, I mean, it's necessary to get that herd immunity and, and provide broader society protection, but it's not the must-have just because so few people under 30 die from COVID. So I think it, it's going to make things slightly harder, but not impossibly difficult. And it probably won't have much impact either way on the overall deaths from, from COVID just because, you know, thank goodness we have a whole bunch of different vaccines. I do wonder if governments would be taking a different approach to this. If we didn't have other vaccines, I mean, it's got to be on the yeah. regulator's mind that there's other vaccines, that this isn't the be all and end all of the vaccine universe when they're making these decisions, even if they, they claim to make them purely based upon the, the facts before them, uh, there's clearly a, in, even in the begging in the back of their mind that, well, this is a survivable decision to make for the UK regulator.
1: Right, and I think that was that was mentioned explicitly in some of the NHRA communications that you know we're doing this as a kind of out of caution rather than out of any sort of real certainty that there is a causal link here between um, the astrazeneca vaccine and, and blood clots. But the Australia example is is really illustrative of the the wrong way to go about things. I mean, if you look going back again to to the the slides that were popularised from the Winton risk communication. Center, like if you look at all the other age groups, if you look at 30 to 39 year olds, 40 to 49 year olds, even with the kind of uncertainty that I talked about, the, the kind of there's such a magnitude in difference between how effective these are at preventing ICU admission through vaccination versus the potential risk from these vaccines. So, I mean, if you look at, say, 40 to 49 year olds, they, they come up with the figure of 5.7 ICU admissions prevented versus 0.5 people in terms of serious risk due to harm to to vaccines. And even if you you have quite a wide confidence interval about the potential impact of of blood clots and the the causal link to the AstraZeneca vaccine, you know, that that seems to me as very much, again, abusing the precautionary principle that we we talked about, or actually it seems very likely that we're going to end up with more lives lost, not to mention the kind of wider impacts that you mentioned, Matthew, around herd immunity more broadly. But in terms of the kind of the media reporting of this, it's been a a real mixed bag. And actually, I remember seeing a a tweet recently that was comparing, I think, the Guardian's front page to the Sun and the the Daily Mail's. And actually, I think the Sun and the Daily Mail did a much better job of kind of Mm. communicating the relative risks here and and what was actually at play. Um, John, have you seen much in the way of media coverage that has surprised you or do you think that great british press have done a wonderful job as ever <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question i think
2: it's it is quite bizarre right that the that the daily mail and the sun are kind of on the on the pro-vaccine bandwagon and, and rightly pointing out that that in fact the risk to to under 30s is extremely low i hadn't actually seen the cardian headline what were they what were they suggesting
1: it was just more of um, it, it was more of a kind of almost sensationalized one saying, "Oh, maybe we should worry," or it wasn't giving the context of how oh, the vaccine is still thought to be very safe and effective. Mm. Um, whereas the Sun and the Daily Mail both did a very good job of making that very clear through their front pages. So it's it, it's just a question of kind of, of emphasis more than anything else. Okay. Yeah. So
0: it was, it was the Sun that did zero point zero 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 nine five percent tiny chance of a killer clot after AZ vaccine. Uh, the, the Telegraph actually had the most extraordinary case of somebody who actually died, or well, let's say a family member of someone who actually died after getting a blog uh, after getting Dude, a, I did see that one this which morning. Which I thought yeah. was extraordinary coverage. The, the person whose family member was says, well, this is very tragic for us, but you should keep it in the vaccine. And we know that this was a freak incident. I mean, that takes a lot of emotional maturity to, to wow. reach that realisation. The Daily Telegraph led with keep calm and carry on jabbing.
2: I think that's quite an excellent
0: <laughs> headline. The FT was a little bit more neutral. Under thirty should get alternative to AstraZeneca, and I think the Guardian as well.
2: How permanent do we think that that this ban actually is? Like, is it is it just a a sort of a, a prescription for now? I mean, is it possible that by the time we actually get round to getting our jabs, they will have investigated it and, and kind of decided to start offering it again?
1: I mean, the, the you know we are going to get more evidence and understanding in about this. How quickly that's going to come in, I think.
0: I don't think they'll, they'll reverse this decision. It would be the way I'd read it because you're not you're going to get more evidence, but you're actually not going to get substantial evidence now that they've stopped the wrong act to under yeah. 30s. So potentially it could have been less or more risky to one 30s. I, I don't know if we can actually ever we're ever going to know that. I think the reason I mean, this is something where I'm, I'd be you know willing to make a bit of a mere couple based upon what we said in previous podcasts, which is I was skeptical about the existence of a casual link. And I think you rightly pointed out, Daniel, if I remember, well, even if there is a casual link, it, it, we should do this on a causal. Cost benefit. of uh, it. Uh, sorry, there is a, a causal link rather than just a casual <laughs> link. You know, if it, it was just pure coincidence, correcting my language, that is very important in this case, a, a, a causal or a casual link between my, my bad language use and uh, a capacity to explain these issues. And now, now what it appears like is that this was, it does appear more likely than not, that there is a very, very rare side effect. And it didn't come up in the in the trials because the trials were something like 30, 40, 50,000 people, which is enough to pick up a serious, that rare but common side effect, but not serious enough, serious enough to pick up a side effect that according to regulators is potentially killing one in a million people who have the vaccine, a really, really tiny number of people. I mean, you're not gonna be able to get, additional data to disprove that at this point so we're just gonna to have to assume it's the case and use different vaccines i also think it's likely that we're going to get different generations of vaccines the vaccines will get better over time but it seems like a lot of these vaccines actually have some quite negative side effects and non-serious ones but in terms of chills and fever and fatigue hopefully future vaccines they might have worked out ways to make it so that you don't even get that so i think we're just going to see this progressive improvement of that vaccination technology rather than reapproving existing technologies
2: yeah I wanted to ask about that a bit because from from people that i know who've taken the astrazeneca vaccine I hear quite often that they have some form of side effect but it's always in like a, in a positive context that they're mentioning like like oh you know I'm so glad I had it I, you know I, I had a headache or the chills for like an afternoon and then I was fine is this like is this quite common for vaccinations like i've I've not really had this kind of conversation on it before like I feel like it might be something that people would be more concerned about, but it seems like everyone has quite a healthy attitude towards these sort of quite benign side effects. I don't think
0: it's that uncommon around having a flu jab for people to get some kind of flu-like yeah. symptoms. I, I suspect, though, I don't know if we have data this yet, that it's a lot more common based upon the, the COVID vaccines. I mean, it does seem like... I mean, effectively, all the vaccines using a different methodology are trying to do the same thing, which is to get your body to fight, um, either create or putting into your body the, the spike protein, the outside part of the coronavirus, the, the crown of the coronavirus. And then your body, by seeing that, your, your immune system works out how to develop antibodies and how to develop an immune response to that. And in that process, it seems like it, just because your body's fighting off the what it thinks is the virus is not in fact the virus. It's it's just the the um, spike protein. It's you getting these kind of effects as if you were having the the, the virus itself. Yeah. So it's no, it's, it's not. I think it's more me. more common than previous vaccinations. But uh hopefully, something that can be addressed in future.
1: Yeah, I think you you know most vaccines you're going to get some risk of very common and mild side effects and as as Matt said you know it's just the vaccine teaching your body's immune system how to protect itself obviously not everyone gets them but you look at most of the kind of NHS advice around coronavirus vaccines and talks about potential you know tenderness or a headache or feeling tired and that sort of thing and I think yeah you're, you're right that people don't really tend to mind this very much because it is it is fairly mild and it's very very much a temporary issue it's not something that's likely to yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just find
2: it bizarre that like people are potentially more concerned about an extremely rare chance of getting a blood clot as opposed to like, oh, it made my mum sick for a bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder whether that's like, you know, th- there doesn't seem to be very high levels of vaccine hesitancy. Obviously, this has come mm-hmm. out fairly recently in the UK and we've only just had the kind of the under 30s not having the AstraZeneca jab announcement so it may be that that feeds into broader levels of vaccine hesitancy but if you look at the shift over the past few months uh, it doesn't seem like there's there's been many issues around this and i don't think this is likely to shift the needle very much for me it's more likely if you look at for example the reaction of some european countries i mean france has very high levels of vaccine hesitancy anyway to me it's more a kind of reflection of those underlying high levels of vaccine hesitancy than it is likely to have a a significant impact on them. So I'm I'm not too worried about that, especially when we have alternatives, and especially with the way that the majority of the press and the government and regulator communications have been quite, quite solid and 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 well thought out on this. It's been quite quite good in terms of scientific communication. I think, although there is that issue that I mentioned at the beginning of this section, with the I think very high levels of uncertainty and the precision of some of the figures around the cost benefit analysis, maybe. Distracting from the fact that actually there is a high amount of uncertainty here, and when you have such a rare side effect, then the the kind of statistical certainty around estimating these sort of things is inevitably going to be quite low. But I think just in terms of the podcast now, we're probably coming towards the end of this section. Yeah, let's
2: let's
0: move on. There's less than a month to go till Londoners go to the polls, with all indicators pointing to a thumping victory for incumbent Sadiq Khan. There's, of course, also a number of other local government elections across the UK, as well as in Scotland and Wales. Uh, John, I'm just wanting to start with, are we paying too little attention to local government? This is where a lot of decisions are made, but we get so focused on the, the national political debate that we, we forget that all
2: politics is ultimately local. I mean, I, I do think there's something to be said for the current focus on on big policy at the moment as opposed to local government, right? Because in a somewhat like rare turn of events, lockdowns, the vaccination, like furlough as well, the whole response to COVID has been like something that affects everyone in a way that, that big kind of national government politics doesn't usually affect us. But I feel like, to be honest, since since 2016, we've we've been living in this very like macro political world, and I, I think a, a sort of a post COVID return to to the local level would be would be uh, would be pretty welcome.
1: Just from a, a kind of free market perspective, there's two real schools of thought on this, and the, the first is actually we need to if if we want to create change in a free market way, then we need to do so at a macro macro level. Um, take the example of housing policy, right? The kind of the the hardcore YIMBY view is that we need to change the rules around planning on a national level in order to take power away from local governments who can often be obstructive in the planning process. But there's another school of thought that actually we need to give more power to to local government and just align incentives better when it comes, again, I'm using the housing example here, but when it comes to, to planning, making sure that local governments actually include people in the planning process in a way that's pro-development. So for me, I I've kind of hop between the two, but I'm, I'm broadly on the side of actually we, we pay too much attention to local government, <laughs> um, with, with, the, with the possible exception of the London mayor elections, actually, I think you know London being such a, a significant driver of economic growth and various things in the UK. In general, I worry that often this kind of focus on local politics that, that we, in my opinion, thankfully haven't had as a result of, of COVID and we have had this focus on, on the macro level, it can, it can devolve into kind of fairly petty issues that they might affect the local community in quite significant ways, but they ultimately distract from some of the wider, larger reforms that we need um, on, on the macro level.
0: Yeah, I think there's a bit of a tendency when it comes to local government to basically see it as really the scum level of, of
1: politicians.
0: <laughs>
1: well, don't restrict your analysis there, Matt. <laughs> and, and,
0: and I think there's a lot of truth to that analysis as well, I mean, if, if you look at some, some recent events in local government. But I, I think in the the argument I'd make is that it's self-reinforcing to some extent, which is particularly in the UK where local government Regional governance has relatively little power. You're not going to attract particularly capable people to be involved with with making what is, quite frankly, very few decisions. And um, the London military you say, Dan, is is quite important. And I think it's in the way Boris used it as a evangelist for the City of London or broader City of London. Um, to be technical about it, or the Greater City of London, even <laughs> is it was quite powerful. But in a sense, the, the mayoralty, and I think we'll, we'll get on to discussing some of the specific things that a Sadiq Khan is promising, doesn't really have very much power and it. it, especially have pretty much power because you've got another level of government below it, who, which does most of the actual service delivery and decision-making. I guess you could say in, in some senses all politics is about the, the ability to, to organise, to persuade, to lead, and that's what you can do at a local level. But I think we'd actually be better to go along the lines of, empowering local governance and empowering local decision makers. And I think that's also the the kind of classical liberal libertarian position instinctively in a lot of senses, because we are quite sceptical of power, quite sceptical of centralised power and monopolised power. And when you have greater ability to, let's say, move between different areas is the kind of classic case about competitive governance. But, but also, I think you can make a knowledge-based argument about local government. So those who are closest to the people who they're representing and serving are going to be able to... Um, deliver better policy and better outcomes. And there's some pretty classic robust social science evidence that the more devolved decision-making is when it comes to healthcare or education or whatever else it may be, um, you tend to get higher quality outcomes um, for students or in healthcare. So I think there's a a strong argument to say, well, we're not focusing much on local politics for good reason because it's not that relevant, doesn't attract great people. But in theory, it should be able to be much better and do much more.
2: I mean, say this as Sadiq Khan is like starting to propose bringing rent controls in, which he can't even do, uh, but would not work anyway. Well, that brings
0: us to our next uh, topic of conversation.
1: <laughs> I think just, just just to come in quickly. Sorry, to, sorry to kill your segue there, uh, Matthew. I know I know how you love your segues, but there, there's a, a good point there in that you know, we we're skeptical of and and dislike a lot of what local government does because, in a way, we're restricting the scope of. What they're able to do, the UK has a very particular approach to local government that isn't shared in many other major countries, where there, there really just isn't that much power. Again, with the exception of, of uh, the mayor of London on the local level, and that means that yeah, you're going to attract the sort of people that that maybe are, are petty tyrants when it comes to your, your bin collection schedules and things like that. And we're not hmm. actually allowing the sort of classical liberal experimentation with. Devolving, say tax rates, for example. I mean, obviously, privatizing bin collection is a fantastic goal.
0: And privatizing the police, privatizing healthcare. Yeah, you people. know,
1: and the, the courts and justice system being privatized. It's, it's all a very, uh, very noble goal. <laughs> Somebody's going to clip this
0: part of the podcast
1: <laughs> and oh put God. this up online. As
0: that, that's what the ASI really wants. <laughs> Although maybe there's a good left-right coalition on privatizing the police. You know, they're sick of the police, they they don't want the police to to keep going the way they're
2: I going. Mean...
1: Oh, there's our next podcast topic.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's what they do in those uh in those oh, what are they called
1: gator communities.
2: No, 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 no. The the thingy free zones where they effectively tried to do their own policing, but it did not go
1: very well. I know that that that's uh, that's collectivizing the police. It's a
2: form of private policing that they had.
0: Just to bring us back, though, to S- Sadiq, uh, our good friend. So I think I know he's kind of touched on a bunch of policy areas that, that you're interested in, um, like decriminalizing cannabis, something I'm interested in, like rent control in, in the case, particularly being opposing to it. I mean, the first thing to obviously point out is that, as everyone said, doesn't really have the power to do any of that is he doing it the right thing in a sense by saying, well, I'm going to convene in a conversation and try to do these things and reach these policy outcomes? Or is he just trying to make the election about something that's not for purely populist reasons?
1: I think it, I think it's both. It's kind of, uh, in the case of his talking about decriminalizing cannabis, or at least bringing together a commission to look at the question of drug laws. You're right, he doesn't have the power to, to do that. Although, Interesting, he does have the power to kind of instruct um, the, the mayor's office can instruct the Metropolitan Police to, to basically not police it as much. So he could, in effect, have some sort of de facto decriminalization or at least depenalization of cannabis. So there is something that he can actually do here. But of course, it is just, you know, naked politicking at the end of the day. He's, he's come up and said something that he can't really do. He can do it in part, but not properly, in order to get more votes, which he doesn't even seem to need at the moment if you look at the the kind of latest you go but- I, I
0: personally I don't know about you, Daniel, but I feel quite uncomfortable about uh, purely as a method trying to decriminalize cannabis by put the extent of police enforcement. I think you're gonna end up with very inconsistent application of the law if if the goal isn't to change the law and what the police should be doing rather than changing the focus of the police? Or are you perhaps more of the view that, you know, any victory, any less Decriminalisation of cannabis is a, is a win and therefore we should, shouldn't should do it.
1: So I, I used to be of, of your view on this, but I've started changing my mind after there's been a lot of local police forces that have experimented with what's known as the diversionary approach, which is in effect, you know, a, a kind of decriminalisation of cannabis on the local level. And I think that although it's true that there's a kind of a concern that, well, it's, it's not a legal change and it, it's inconsistent, they are useful experiments for showing that decriminalization can work when it comes with a kind of a broader infrastructure around diverting people towards other schemes instead of instead of just you know arresting them and giving them a criminal record it's not a kind of complete absence of policing and there's nothing it's setting up an infrastructure where people maybe don't get criminal records if you know they're caught or they might get fined at least a little bit or you know they might be sent to a, a course or something like that so I think that they they can work, although, you know, as I've said many times, I think obviously the best alternative here is legalization regulation on a national level or when we're talking decrim, then doing, again, decriminalizing cannabis on a national level and setting up a kind of national guidance around diversion schemes. Um, I think that would be more useful. But again, you know, the kind of happy side consequence of this, regardless of whether you think it's a good idea to be making pledges you can't really keep to win elections,
0: <laughs> politicians making pledges they can't keep to win elections. Daniel, I'm shocked at a poll. This never happens. This must be a completely new phenomenon.
1: Yeah, it's Sadiq is a real innovator in politics <laughs> here. It's very, very new behaviour. <laughs> but, um, but the kind of fallout for this is that the debate around cannabis has once again come to the fore at the national level. And you know, we we had a very quick YouGov follow up poll on this, which once again showed a majority in support. Of legalizing. Um, so once again, Daniel
0: Pryor is the yeah. real winner
2: here. Um, once again, <laughs> you know,
1: I'm sitting here pulling all the strings. I'm very happy with myself.
2: It was It was interesting to see how quickly Number 10 slapped down mm. any of that conversation. I don't know if you saw what they said, but effectively it was that the Prime Minister is completely uninterested in having any kind of discussion about decriminalization or legalization, because he still views it as a harmful substance.
1: Yeah, it was... I mean, you know, on the one hand, I'm, I'm fairly... Harsh
2: unsure. words from from Champagne Boris. It, it seems like a, a bit
0: unfortunate that if Sadiq is going to take this up, because I think the natural instinct of Boris will be to slap down what Sadiq does... Um, it's it, it's kind of yeah. like a you know don't you hate it when the worst guy you know makes a good point for once? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's yes. it's not particularly helpful politically. I mean, just I mean, in a case where he's not making a good point, and I've done a bit of work on over the years is rent control, which I think is probably for the best that the, the central government won't give Boris that power. So won't give Boris won't give Sadiq that power. Rightfully so because it's it's not something that the local government and the melty should have the right to do which is limit a private interaction between a, a landlord and and a renter and that we know if they try to do that like they've tried to do it everywhere else in the world you're going to decrease the level of houses they constructed if you, if you design it like they've designed it in berlin it's kind of been funny over the last couple of years the mayor of london's office has been pointing to berlin as a perfect case study in rent control but of course it failed in Berlin as well, as as we've discussed previously on, on the podcast, um, and it failed for the obvious reasons. So it, they only decided to rent control older apartments, but that meant that the cost of newer apartments went up substantially and the ac- accessibility of older apartments went down because people started selling them rather than renting them out. So it just had disastrous consequences on the market for the reasons you would always think that, that price controls will have disastrous consequences on a market. Uh, Daniel, what I'm just going to use some kind of last thoughts about potentially what we'd like to see at a local government level, at a multi-level? What what, what policies should these politicians be focusing on if they were to you know, knock on 23 Great Smith Street, assuming that we were back there post-pandemic, and and say, what do you guys reckon I should I should stand for? What advice would you give?
1: Well, Apart from surrendering to the free market behemoth of social, uh, central government and uh, not having any power, uh, no, in all seriousness, there, there's a few things that... that... I tend to focus on a local government level. I mean, for London specifically, there's obviously the kind of the nanny state stuff that Sadiq has been doing that should be repealed or, or, or not done. So we've already had the kind of Transport for London ad bans for junk food, which we've discussed previously. Now there's talk of him banning gambling ads. And as I record this, I need to check the Grand National, which I think is is going on today and get a bet on that, talking of which this is not gambling advertising, however, this is my own personal preference. Other things to criminalizing cannabis we've talked about i think these the sort of diversion schemes for drugs more generally have been quite successful through other police forces even if you're caught with small amounts of quote unquote harder drugs there's uh, Thames Valley police for example who have experimented with giving harm reduction advice rather than criminalizing i think that's a great step we can do again for london specifically you've got the ongoing black cabs versus uber debate i think taking a stronger stance and breaking the black cab monopoly would be very good for competition for consumers, for Londoners, and actually for for drivers, and driver partners as well. And again, on the transport theme, of course, this is something we talk about a lot, is proper road pricing. We had the, the congestion charge, but that's not really proper road pricing in the same sense. I think the kind of very free market idea of charging people the correct price for a scarce resource, and then you get the correct amount of that scarce resource being used is a fairly important one. And, you know, ideally, you'd want to look to... Kind of introduce this on a national level, but I think that the local government level and the city level is a good place to start. And I guess finally, the the one area that, that I haven't actually done as much writing on recently, but it, it's definitely a, a big research interest of mine, is looking at experiments with sex work decriminalisation. and something that we talked about before at the ASI to members of the Greater London Assembly, and there have been experiments at the local level. If you look at Holbeck in Leeds, to have experiments with certain zones of the city being designated as uh, sex work being decriminalized, uh, street sex work this is being decriminalized. And there's quite good evidence that this reduces violence against against sex workers and allows them to, to access the sort of support services that uh, that are on offer a lot easier. So some of those I think are realistic and possible as well. Some of them perhaps a little bit more pie in the sky. I'm, I'm a little bit pessimistic for example about the reversal of Nanny state trends, even if um, even if we were to get a more free market leading Canada in the in the London mayoral election. But that's that's my short list, and I'm sure there's plenty more.
0: Well, with that shopping list done and our good friend leaving twenty three Great Smith Street full of excellent ideas to run with in their next local government election, I think it's time to to move back on to some national politics.
1: It's been just over a year since Keir Starmer took over the Labour Party leadership. And our job as free marketeers at the Adam Smith Institute is to think about how he's been doing so far. And I guess the first kind of major theme when people are talking about evaluating Keir Starmer's leadership of the Labour Party, it, does he have the identity that voters understand and can get behind? Does he need to have one? even three to four years out from a general election? Has he been shaping that in a way that's electable? Maybe, John, if you wanted to take this.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I do think he gets a bad rap, right, for for not having an identity. I do think that it's not so important at this stage. There's still a lot of internal problems that Labour has that he should probably fix before it can become a sort of an electable party once again. I mean, he he inherited effectively a, a, a party of protest from Jeremy Corbyn. Having said that, I do think there is like quite a fundamental structural problem in the sense that he's attempting to appeal to Labour's more traditional base of support, which we'll we'll see how that kind of plays out in the Hartlepool by-election, I think. But also to try and keep on board some of that younger cohort that signed up under Corbyn. And I think the fundamental issue there is in fact they there is not that much of a of a shared base of values. And that's why he's kind of dithering, I suppose, <laughs> to 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 use a particular phrase.
1: To be fair to him, it has been a very difficult time to get any sort of cut through as uh, opposition leader. Obviously, you know, sort of national crisis around coronavirus. You could argue this is where uh, strong and successful leaders should be made, if if they're to be made at all. But it's it's been made difficult for him to kind of really get any sort of cut through. And I think his aides as well they do accept the criticism that Labour's messaging hasn't really been reaching voters. He's been able to kind of cut through to some of the, the people who were instinctively Labour voters but were just massively put off by Corbyn. But still, if you look at his, his kind of ratings compared to the Prime Minister, they might have advanced in the polls a little bit compared to where they were at the last election. But Boris Johnson's still is better than him when it comes to net satisfaction rating, when it comes to who would make the best prime minister, those sort of questions. So he's not doing too great, Um, although, you know, there there is, as the question suggested, still three, four years out from a general election. It's just that that first year is often where you have the chance to best make your impression and stamp your authority and, and kind of define who you are as a leader in a party. And he just hasn't been able to do that, really, for various reasons.
0: I think Kia has, in a sense, a, a short term challenge and a long term challenge. Um, the short term one probably shouldn't worry him too much, which is basically in any parliamentary system, opposition leaders have not had a particularly good time in in the last year it, it is very difficult when you've got a leader in a time of national crisis a, a prime minister sitting up there talking to people every day people constantly paying attention to politics the, the leaders taking just what appears to be decisive action whether you agree with it or not i think they get some automatic kudos and that's kind of helped boris we saw a particularly large bump at the start of the pandemic and, and since then his, his ratings haven't been great they haven't been awful comparatively I think that'll pass and Keir will have to define himself more broadly than the pandemic. And I think he knows that and he's played a careful strategy here in terms of not being seen to be excessively oppositional. I think that was a perfectly smart thing to do, even when arguably there were certain times when he should have been more oppositional. But I think the longer-term struggle that Keir Summer has is just this fundamental difference between the party that he leads and the country that he's trying to represent and the voters that the Labor Party is trying to speak to. Uh, I think this is very well defined at the last election when we saw these huge swings in these old Labor areas to the, the Tories. And it was partly about Corbyn, but I think this is also a longer-term trend here, which is that the Labor Labour Party is increasingly kind of narrow, high-intellectual, highly educated, increasingly kind of far-left party, and Keir has to somehow put that together with the fact that he wants to win kind of conservative old guard working class labour voters and they're two constituencies that are in many ways fundamentally opposed and he has to walk this line constantly to keep the activists on on in line to reach out to the um, broader electorate i mean just the difficulty of this shouldn't be underestimated labour party in the uk we should remember it when it comes to next election there's literally only one man who would have it's been successful in the last 50 years and his name was Tony Blair and everyone in the Labour Party these days hates his guts and the, the fact that they, they can't see that whatever their current strategy is and whatever their strategy has been for, for most of the last 50 years hasn't really worked doesn't seem to really matter. I think the Tories are also very good at pushing Labour into corner on a lot of these cultural issues and Keir needs to work out Uh, I think there's been some mocking commentary about this, but I think he's he's very well aware of the fact that he can't seem to hate the country that he wants to lead and that he needs to somehow be that kind of patriotic figure who loves Britain, who wants to lead Britain if people are going to vote for him and particularly if those older kind of working class voters are going to vote for him. Um, But at the same time, he's inside the party. He's trying to represent all the people who do hate modern Britain and, and do hate the country. That's no easy, easy balance to make.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the question that, that I had down here to ask was, you know, could any leader actually at all carry Labour to electoral victory at the next general election? And or are they fundamentally doomed? And I think you've illustrated quite well there, Matthew, that there, there is this really difficult line to draw between two fundamentally different groups of voters, both of which are needed by Labour in, in the kind of a coalition in order to to be able to carry them to any sort of success at a general election. You know, socially liberal, city-dwelling, metropolitan, middle class who might have uh, a lot of alignment on, on socially liberal kind of cultural issues and things like this. The polar opposite of the traditional Labour working class base when it comes to those sort of issues.
2: Yeah, I, th- I don't think there's anyone who, who seriously thinks... Keir Starmer will win the next general election, right? Like, no one thinks he's going to be Prime Minister in 2024, and I'd be surprised if he thought that he had a genuine shot at that either. I think more likely than not, he'll be recollected as a sort of transitional leader, party leader, kind of like what the Tories went through through the early 2000s, in that they'll have to undergo like some fairly significant structural change. He'll he'll end up being sort of a, a steadying hand, in that process.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a kind of hope, right, that you, you have Labour going through a similar sort of process that the Conservatives went through under New Labour's years, which is that they fundamentally have to rethink what their, what their offering is and, and what sort of coalition they can appeal to. The problem is that I, I don't necessarily see a way for them out of this. You know, it could just be that fundamentally there is now no longer a way to get enough voters together to form a majority across the country that are sympathetic to any of Labour's messages, whether that's on the economy or whether that's on the more kind of cultural side of things as well.
0: I wouldn't be necessarily quite that pessimistic. So although you're right, they're in, a, and as I've said, they're in a quite difficult situation, I, I don't want that to be misinterpreted as me saying that I don't think they can ever get back into power or they're you know, going to be stuck in opposition for decades to come. I think there's a temptation after every election to say, well, the party that lost is screwed forever. It felt like the Tories were never going to get back into power in the 2000s. But if you look at uh, the last 50 years, again, you'll see it. it's almost like the, the Tories are the natural party of government in the UK. These, these things do go in cycles the major major parties in Western democracies, like the Labour and the Tories, are election-winning machines, and can transform them in themselves into what they need to be to to win votes, to persuade people. Also, governments become stale; they become old. They they eventually people, whether or not they're competent or not. And I think um, there's lots of questions about the government's competency over the last couple of years. Um, that that if Keir Starmer and Labour can really latch onto, they might have some electoral luck just directly in in those terms if the the Tories can't deliver for people and they can't deliver the outcomes and deliver the policy reforms and and the according prosperity, Labour's going to have a a relatively easy sell. We also have to remember that I think voters are a lot more fickle than they were in the past. Previously, historically, people were a lot more attached to their particular party more or less you could explain people's voting patterns on like a a class-based analysis. If you're working class in a manual job, you voted Labor. If you're kind of middle class a more kind of professional job or business owner, whatever it may be, uh, you've, you voted Tory. These days voters very much um, don't have those levels of traditional party identification. It means they can swap. So that means the Tories can get a landslide in one election, but there's no reason why Labour can't, similarly get a landslide in the other direction people don't love politicians and love politics and love parties and are willing to flip so I wouldn't say Labor's out of power forever I can absolutely could see Keir Starmer or could see Labor within the next election It's, it's an uphill battle it always is an uphill battle for opposition though and it'll really be a matter of what kind of policy offerings they can have over the next few years I think they potentially can learn a lot from Joe Biden Joe Biden, ironically, despite being an American presidential candidate, basically ran as a Westminster opposition. You know, he was not Donald Trump. Of course, Boris Johnson is not Donald Trump either, and he can't as easily be opposed as Trump could be. But just the fact that Joe Biden very much electorally ran from the centre, perhaps you can say he's governing more for the left, but he electorally ran from the centre, is probably an important lesson for the Labour Party in the UK
1: yeah im my concern here is that it's whilst it's definitely true that voters are no longer as easily stratified alongside class lines it seems like that has been replaced to a certain extent by their affiliation in the culture wars as it where it seems like that's certainly playing a more important role in in determining what people vote for It's true they be, you know voters become more fickle in general and you can't just reduce who someone votes for to whether they what they think about, say, trans rights or the recent race report from the, the commission or something like that. But but these issues do play a much larger role than they used to. For me, that's why I think that, that there is uniquely difficult position for, for Labour here that maybe wasn't the case when it comes to trying to, to switch around the, the electoral machine in, in past times for, for other major parties is that, you know, that... Their constituency, their, their traditional constituency of working class people is now one of the groups that is most strongly on the other side of the culture wars to what most of their activist base are. So you, you've got a situation that I think is is unique and slightly different here that, that requires some, some very difficult action. And actually, your, your kind of comparison to Biden here, I think, is useful because with the Democrats, you've also got a base of activists that are very much on the, the kind of left side of things when it comes to the the culture wars but biden managed to do it although you know some would say and you pointed this out a big part of that is because trump is such an easy person to kind of rally quite disparate coalition of people on the left behind in, in terms of opposing them whereas boris maybe doesn't quite have the same sort of uh bogeyman status and i think he has that even less now because covid's come to dominate the national conversation more so than than Brexit, when there was kind of everything was talking about Brexit, I think that there was a, a much stronger opportunity to paint Boris as the kind of you know Brexit bogeyman. Whether you leave or remain, you can criticise his handling of Brexit, and you can appeal to to people across class and, and cultural divides. Whereas now, it just seems like that there, there isn't quite the same thing to. To pin on Boris and say, you know, regardless of what you think about these culture issues, we can all agree that this guy is the worst, and therefore vote for me. It's not—it's not quite so easy anymore.
2: How do we feel about age? Because I think looking at polling, it's this young people who don't really vote Tory, right? I mean, always, always has been, probably always will. But I don't think that the adage that you know, as, you, as people get older, they start to vote Tory more. I mean, in this case, there's there's a housing crisis and if you look at london right like the tories are now pretty much completely absent mm. my point being is that, that there is kind of a much longer term opportunity for labor to become the party of the young especially when the tories seem like fairly uninterested in representing or at least addressing the issues that affect young people the most
1: yeah i th- i feel like there's, got, there's a very much a short to long term trade off here if if labor are, are aiming to become the party of the young in the long term, I mean they already are, let's be real, but kind of focusing on that more so over time. The problem is that a lot of things that young people want are not the same kind of ambitions for that working class voting block. Again, coming back and I've done this a few times, but coming back to the kind of culture wars issues, young people tend to be on the more quote unquote woke side of these working class in the UK tend not to be. So you're gonna have to sacrifice a lot if you wanna be able to realign yourself in a way that, that suits with that but yeah i i certainly agree that like the, the tories have got a big challenge here and i think it's a more long-term issue or a more long-term way back for for labor there's there's certainly scope there well some food for thought there on the future of the uk electoral coalitions and what the different parties will represent hopefully all of them will represent a sound free market socio liberal approach to the uk but you know we're realists here. That's, that's probably a bit pie in the sky thinking. Uh, but on that note, thank you very much for joining us and listening to this episode of The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. If you like what you've heard, then please do subscribe to us and like us on your chosen podcast provider. And thank you very much to my erstwhile co-host, Matthew Lesch, our Head of Research, and our guest John McDonald, Head of Government Affairs. We look forward to joining you again next week. Until then, goodbye.